Our Father, liberty is such a, a, a wonderful word for us. We, uh, we Americans glory in the fact that we are free people. And yet, Lord God, there is a, there is a deeper, more profound, uh, a richer freedom that is ours because we have been freed from the bondage to sin. We now have within us the, the power to say no to sin. There was a time, O oh God, that the only thing that, that we chose was sin. But then, by the power of your Holy Spirit, we have been brought to a new life. And with that life came new abilities. And now we have a liberty from the bondage of sin and death, which was once ours. We thank you. We thank you like a people who have been set free. We are um, skipping in the streets, Lord, because you have set us free from that bondage. Our Father, uh, we, um, we love our nation, and yet we see her uh, wounded and, and see her adrift morally. We see our government who we, um, continues to disappoint us. And we pray, O oh God, that you will remind us that we're, we belong to another kingdom. Uh, this is the place we live for the time being. For the dress rehearsal, we live here. But for the real thing, we belong to another kingdom. And we will soon arrive there. The promises of God are sure. And the promise of our Savior was that he has gone to prepare a place for somebody as wicked as I am. And we look forward to that place. That time when we'll be able, we will be free from our sin and from everybody else's. And dwell in a tearless uh, eternity. Our Father, I pray for those who come in here not so tearless, but whose eyes are still moist from the tears they shed last night or this morning or this week because of the aches and pains of family, the aches and pains of marriage, the aches and pains of, of a deteriorating body, the aches and pains of a, of a, a dog-eat-dog corporate world. And I pray, Lord God, that you will catch us up this morning and remind us that this is, um, this is all preparation, that all of these things are simply honing us into the people that you would have us be for your glory. Father, in a few minutes, we're going to, we're going to celebrate this sacrament that is so, um, so marvelously clear in its presentation of what Jesus has done. And I pray that no person in this room will miss it. Lord, see to it that no person in this room misses the thrust and the importance of these common elements that they find in their grocery stores. Now, Father, we thank you for the privilege of giving. The, the privilege is indeed ours. We need to give it a whole lot more than you need to get it. And so, Father, as we deny our flesh to give, choosing rather to live more sacrificially as we have chosen to live more simply so that we can accomplish the Great Commission, take every dime and do that, accomplish an expansion of the kingdom of Jesus Christ. In whose name we pray, amen. Thank you. Take your Bibles, if you will, and open them to the uh, 51st Psalm, Psalm 51. Now, guys, um, 
Um, I, I, I'm afraid I'm going to insult some of your intelligences this morning, um, and I bear with me. There are some psalms that seem that everybody seems to know, like Psalm 23, maybe Psalm 100, maybe 139, maybe um, oh others. But perhaps right next to Psalm 23, the most the most widely known one, I think, is Psalm 51. If you like stories, then you need to know the story behind this one. You know, it's helpful to know who wrote each one of these psalms. But perhaps it's even more helpful in in this case to know the the setting in which it was written. So let me tell you the story. I I think it's familiar to many of you. Maybe you haven't ever attached this psalm to that event. But let me do that for you. And that's where I risk insulting your intelligence. Maybe you know all of this. and um, But for those of you who don't, you might find this interesting. Psalm 51 was written by David. Now, you know who David is. He was the king of Israel. He was the shepherd boy, the one that slew Goliath, and the one that wrote probably more than over half of these psalms. So David wrote Psalm 51, but he wrote it in a place in his life that was absolutely turbulent. Um, this is all recorded for you in 2 Samuel 11, if you'd like to read the story. But David, in a, in a fit of um, just neglect of soul and lethargy of soul, uh, finds himself entangled with a woman that was not his wife. Her name was, was Bathsheba. Now, you've heard of David and Bathsheba. Well, Bathsheba was this beautiful woman that David uh, impregnated. And uh, as when he found out that she was pregnant, uh, he tried a couple of ways to hide his sin, and it didn't work. And ultimately, he had to have Bathsheba's husband murdered. Uh, it was kind of a roundabout way that he was murdered, but he was killed nonetheless. And uh, that meant that David was now somewhat off the hook. Well, several months later... David was paid a visit by one of the prophets of Israel, whose name is Nathan. And guys, I mean, they made a movie out of this. I mean, this is, this is drama. Uh, This is high drama. Well, here's the king of Israel who, with a word, has people's heads lopped off. But uh, David gets visited by one of the prophets of Israel, a preacher by the name of Nathan. And Nathan comes into David's, office and says, um, David, let me tell you a story. And so he tells this story about a man who takes this sheep when he had plenty of sheep and, and, uh, this, he took it from this guy that didn't have but one. And, and David's outraged by this story. Oh, it's terrible. That man needs to be killed. And then Nathan says, David, you're the man. You're the one that did that. You, you know, that little story I just told you, David, that was about you. Because you and your wives and your, and your concubines, but Uriah the Hittite had one wife, and you took her, and you had him murdered. Nathan takes his bony little prophetic finger and sticks it in David's face and says, you're the man. You're the one that did that. And at that moment, we've got a real, <laughs> we've got a real crisis, because David can go one of two ways. He could explode in this outburst of fury and say, out with you and somebody take him and kill him. Or he could repent. 
and he chose the latter. In the midst of his repentance, he writes Psalm 51. So it's, it's not so much important that you know who wrote this, but you need to know the setting in which it was written. Here is a man gripped by his sin. Now, I know that's not a, 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 you know, a popular, our sin. And we do all kinds of dances to redefine it and get around it. But here is a man overcome with the guilt of his sin. Now, I'm not going to read the whole psalm to you. Actually, I'm not even concerned that you understand the psalm this morning. I'm not going to give you any of my customary brilliant observations uh, elucidated by my poignant illustrations. That's not important, at least for this morning. It's important that you understand Psalm 51, yes, but it's not important in terms of what I hope to accomplish this morning. So I want you to let me just kind of jump around. I really don't know what verses I'm going to read in Psalm 51. I know where my text is. You might not be glad about that, but... I just want you to look at the psalm with me, and and I want you to taste it. I I don't intend to explain it to you. Very frankly, it doesn't need much explanation. Just, if you've got a Bible, and if you don't have a Bible, call us. We'll buy you one. Um, But I just want you to look at the words of this man who is walking around in his bedroom overcome that he could have done such a thing. And that man writes this. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me. Thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Verse 4. Against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Verse 10. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Here's my text, 16, 17. For you will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God endures forever. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I am uh, somewhat uh, histrionic, as you know. Um, That word simply means theatric. (laughs) Um, But there's not enough theater in me to rightly communicate what this man's going through in the midst of his writing this. I wish I could. I wish I could grab you and grip you with the, uh, with the scene here. But here's a man who knows his sin. 
and is um, crying out, as Paula sang, for new mercies. I don't know whether you've noticed it. I hope you have noticed it. But um, whether you have or not, let me explain. The past few months that we have sought to do things a bit differently on Communion Sundays. You know, I, I, um, I, I checked with two churches this, Sunday, this, this week and um, found out that they have communion only quarterly. I don't understand that. I, um, you know, one of my heroes thought you should have, you should have communion every day, and then others have communion every week. We have it every month. I, I don't know what goes into all that. I'll, all I'm simply saying, once a month, we have communion. And we have sought to do something different than our normal services with it. The, the major thing, or one of the major things, is that I don't, I mean, church tends to be, let's go hear what Jimmy has to say and go home and critique him. One of the words that's really important around here is the word participatory. We want you to participate, and very frankly, you know, I'm, I get in the way of you participating because I get paid to produce something up here. So what we've sought to do on, on the Communion Sundays is, is try to catch you up into this event of worship known as the Lord's Supper. Um, we, we've tried to, to allow more participation. That's what we've tried to do. So I guess the major difference is in, uh, on these once a month, I'm trying to stay out of your way. You know, in some ways, I hamper you in your efforts to worship your God. You know, you're sitting out there saying, or some of you are, he's too loud. <laughs> you know, um, I, I can't understand him. Or, um, I don't like his looks. Well, I just want you to know, I don't like these looks either, but we're both stuck with them, you know? But there's a, some of that can perhaps prevent you from engaging in genuine worship. So the intent of these services uh, and on Lord's Sunday Sundays, on the Lord's Supper Sundays, is to make my role irrelevant, as irrelevant as I can make it. And that means this. That I get out of your way and encourage you to go meet with your God without any of the distractions that I might produce. In the hopes that you can have a real experience with the real God. You know, just the two of you. My reduced role on these Sundays, I understand it like this. I want to try to simply steer you onto the path on which God has said he can be found. And then get out of your way. And let you go meet with him. Does that sound spooky to you? I hope not. Here's, here's, what I, here's the path outlined for you today. Remember a couple of weeks ago, um, Ronnie Stevens told the story about David, same one that wrote this psalm. He is with three of his biggest supporters, and he makes this statement. He says, 
Oh, boy. <laughs> Would I love to have a drink of water from the well in Bethlehem? You know, where I was born, you know, over in Bethlehem, my boy, would I love to drink some water from that well? And the three guys who heard that decide, hey, y'all, why don't we go get him one? And so they risk their lives. They go into this uh, occupied camp and get him some water from the well in Bethlehem and bring it back to him. The point that I'm simply making is, God, is, guys, is that if you love this king, you want to give him what he wants, don't you? When you love the king, that is God, you, you want to give him the things that he says that he wants. Now, that's where our text comes in, verses 16 and 17. Notice that David says in verse 16, you will not delight in sacrifice, um, or, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with the burnt offering. God, I, I know that, that, that ritual form stuff, you know, when I simply go through the motions of being at church and doing my church thing, I know that's not what you want. But then notice what he says in verse 17, the sacrifices of God are a broken spirit. A broken and contrite heart, oh God, you will not despise. I know you don't like that stuff, but here's one thing I do know you do like. You'll never despise it. You'll always welcome a broken and a contrite heart. Now guys, stay with me. If you can picture David back in that, you know, he's talking to his three friends. If you can get that in your mind, he's talking to his three friends and he says, oh boy, man, oh man, would I ever love to have a glass of water from the well drawn, from water drawn at the well of Bethlehem. Man, that'd be great. If you can picture that just for a second, then picture this. God says, You know what I delight from my people? You know what I long to have? I long to have a broken and contrite spirit. People who love this king want to give him what he wants. Okay, Jimmy then how do I give him that? Um, what does that look like? Let me tell you real quick, and then we're going to meet at the table. Another quick story. On October the 31st of this month, it'll be 486 years since Martin Luther, that Augustinian monk, walked over to the church in Wittenberg, Germany, and he took out this scroll that he had written, and he nailed it on the church door. That's not a movie. That's, a, that's an event. That really happened. He nailed 95 challenges to the Roman Catholic Church. Okay? And um, they've, been, they've come to be known as the 95 Theses. Luther's 95 Theses. Number one on that list of 95 was this. Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when he said, repent... Willed that the whole life of believers should be one of repentance. Now go back with me. The broken and the contrite heart 
that God so desires is reflected in our repentance over our sin. So here's what we're going to do. As we distribute these elements, I want to ask you, or I want to challenge you. You will make the choice. But I want to challenge you to use this time to confess and repent of your sin. Not sin generally. Sin specifically. Well, sin generally too. For instance, you don't say, Lord, I I, I want to ask you to forgive me for my selfishness. You can say that. But then you add, Lord, this morning, I am so caught up with myself that I spoke stabbingly to my wife. Forgive me. Or we don't pray, um, we don't confess, I'm an envious person. You can pray that, but then add this. Lord Jesus, you know the reason that I don't like him? It's because I'm so envious. So what we're going to do is we're going to give you time to bring a broken and a contrite heart. Because we're people who delight in this king and we want to give him what he wants. And he has gone on record as saying one of the things that he wants is a broken and contrite heart. We'll give you four minutes. Once the elders are seated, I'm going to time it. But you'll have time while the elements are being distributed. You'll have four minutes. So a total of about 15 minutes to give to God something that you know he desires. A heart that is broken by the knowledge of its own sin. Confessing specific sins, specifically a repentance that's not simply being sorry, but being sorry enough to quit. My brother and sister in Christ, take your sin to the Savior whose broken body and shed blood means forgiveness for all those who embrace Him. Let's meet at the table.